prophet, a good teacher, a religious leader, a revolutionary, a spiritual guide, the Son of God. Many have described him in different ways, but who was Jesus really? How did his humble group of followers turn into the world's largest religion? Join us in January as we investigate the beginning of the Jesus Revolution. Investigating Jesus, a revolution begins. A series at Stapleton Church. Hey everybody, it's so good to see you all. My name is Matt Wolf, I'm the lead pastor here, and you guys picked a good day to be here. Seriously, you did. I'm, I'm glad that you guys are here. I want to introduce someone to you, you probably, or you might know her, Val Schur. Can we welcome Val Schur to the stage? <laughs> you probably know Val. She's been up here a lot because she's been a faithful servant of our church, leading in worship, doing all sorts of stuff in our church for years, been through a lot of difficult times in our church, and been faithful to our church through that. Um, so, I want to introduce her to you because she is taking on a new position here at our church on our staff. So, this is what been going on. When we launched our night service back in September, Bobby, who Bobby Brunswick, our worship director, we were like looking at it. He's a full-time teacher, and he's our worship leader. How do you do three services on a Sunday and work a full-time job? And we're like, it's kind of impossible. So we wanted to get him some help. So we brought on Nikki McCaffrey, an amazing woman in our church, as an assistant worship director. Well, her dad is in very, very poor health, and because of that, she had to step back from that position. So please pray for the McCaffreys and her dad, Mike, because of that. But she said, hey, I just can't do this, this in addition to her full-time job and taking care of um, her dad and their family. So we're like, okay, well, we need somebody. We're looking all over the place for somebody to help with worship. And we thought, well, we already have someone right under our nose. Why haven't we been looking here? So we are bringing on Val Schur as our assistant worship director. And she did a pretty good job already this morning, didn't she? Yeah. So she's leading the band and leading worship, and we're just so grateful to her. So make sure when you see her after the service, you thank her, welcome her as a, f- a fresh thing uh, as, the, as a part of our staff now. But we're so grateful to that. So thank you, Val. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I spoke with a man after one of our services, and I had preached, and, and it was a message about Jesus and some of the miraculous things and the supernatural things about Jesus that the Bible claims. And he said, Matt, you know, I really love Jesus. I love the teaching. I love the moral teaching. It's really good for me and for my kids. I love all that. But I've always struggled with some of the supernatural stuff. Is Jesus really the Son of God? I have my doubts, he said. Uh, it reminds me of another conversation I had before that sometime last year. And the man says, Matt, I, I love the Bible. I love Jesus. I want to follow his teaching. But is he really God? Okay, I think this idea, I've had this conversation with lots of different people, and some of you in here feel the same way. You're like, I love Jesus, love his teaching. He's such an important guy, a moral teacher, a moral figure that we can follow his example. But is he really the son of God? Is there really something supernatural about him and what he did? I don't know. So if you're here today and you've, you've ever thought that, if you're thinking that right now or if you have doubts about it, well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Because the Bible actually doesn't give us any other option. If you read through the scriptures from the beginning, you see that Jesus is described in supernatural terms. He performed miracles. He is called the Son of God. The Bible doesn't really give any leeway to believe anything else. So, was Jesus really the Son of God? 
In our series right now, we're actually doing a bunch of mini-series through the Gospel of Luke. And we're in our second part of it, called A Revolution Begins, as we're looking, starting in Luke chapter 3, like we did last week, that we're going to look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, how he started out, what he did. And from the very beginning, Luke, who was an educated doctor, a historian, and he wrote down the history of the early church, he went back and investigated himself, he talked to eyewitnesses, he went to the locations where Jesus did ministry, and after that he wrote down this account that we have called the Gospel According to Luke. And in it, from the beginning, right when we're introduced to the man Jesus, a grown-up, which we will be today. Last week we, we talked about the precursor, the guy who came before him. But now we're looking at Jesus. And from the beginning, Jesus calls him, or I'm sorry, Luke calls Jesus the Son of God. A supernatural title from the beginning. So is Jesus really the Son of God? That's the question that we're going to grapple with and we have to grapple with from the beginning of this account as we investigate Jesus for ourselves. And if you're thinking, well, Matt, I, I've always struggled with this idea. I don't understand it. How, how could that be? How could this human being also be the Son of God? How does that work? I don't understand it. Well, here's the thing. Just because you don't understand something doesn't mean it isn't true. Um, our daughter, McKinley, who's three this week, wanted to watch a B movie. You seen a B movie? Came out ten years ago, uh, you know, a little Pixar-ish. I don't know if that's the right term. Uh, movie, um, Jerry Seinfeld wrote it. Pretty cheesy, dumb little movie, but she wanted to watch it for like the eighth time, and she told me this is my favorite movie that day, although it's a different one every single day. Um, but that day it was a B movie, and at the very beginning of a B movie, I, there's this screen that, that shows up, and it says, according to all known laws of aviation, there is no way that a bee should be able to fly. Its wings are too small to get its fat little body off the ground. The bee, of course, flies anyway, because bees don't care what humans think is impossible. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> and if you look at it, it's an interesting thing. And this kind of got my brain thinking, yeah, well, I don't understand how they fly. How can they? Big fat bodies, little tiny wings. How do they fly around all over the place? And what I looked up, I was like, is this true? And actually, it's kind of a myth. But it's a very educated myth because back in the 1930s, an entomologist, meaning someone who had studied, gotten his PhD in studying insects, was looking at the bee, and he said this, based on all the things that we know about aviation, how things fly, how birds fly, it makes no sense, according to physics, that a bee should be able to fly. And therefore they said it's impossible. And yet, bees fly. <laughs> so for years, decades, we had no way to understand why and how a bee flies, and yet we know a bee flies. It wasn't actually until about 2005 when a couple different researchers did some different studies and were able to look at the bee and they found out the way that their wings flap is at a certain angle up and down and what it actually does is it pushes down air into form these like mini hurricanes. These mini hurricanes that kind of put the bee up and that's why it kind of jumbles all around. It doesn't really fly as straight as some other insects and birds. So it wasn't until 2005 that we could actually explain what is going on uh, on a physics level. Okay, That's a long time that we had no understanding of it. But just because the most learned people of our society didn't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. So if we can say that about the realm of physics, could we also then say that about the realm of metaphysics or the supernatural as we're going to be talking about today? So I want to challenge you to have an open mind when we're talking about Jesus being the Son of God. Just have an open mind today. Just say, is it maybe something that I don't understand, but could be possible? Okay, Because that's all that I want you to do. That's, that's a fair challenge, right? You're here, give, 
give it an open mind, right? So that's what we're going to look at today. Is Jesus really the Son of God? And what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this section of Luke. We're going to go from Luke chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 4, verse 14. Uh, So if you have a Bible, you can already go ahead and open there with me or on your smartphone. If you're watching online, I just want to let you know I'm going to be jumping around a little bit. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see that the outline says we'll go through section 1, Jesus' baptism, and then to section 3, which is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, and then go back to the middle section. And it'll become clear why I'm doing that towards the end of my message. Um, But watching online, I just want you to be paying attention so you're not like, what the heck is he talking about? And if you're here, you should still pay attention too, right? Okay, so let's look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21. We read uh, in verse 21 where it says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And he was praying, I'm sorry, I'm just going to stop right there for a second. (laughs) I'm getting ahead of myself. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. So what's going on here? Well, we talked about last week. If you weren't here in week one, you can always go back online, staplethenchurch.com under our media tab. We have audio and video of every message. You can subscribe on your podcast app to the audio. You can subscribe on YouTube to our video. Make sure you don't miss anything. But if you did, I'm going to catch you up. Because there was a guy who came before Jesus by the name of John, often called John the Baptist. Maybe a better term would be John the Baptizer or John the Immerser because he went out into the desert and he was preaching, turn or burn, you need to repent of your sins. And we learned our big idea was that you can't expect a new start without a repentant heart. Okay, Because that's the message that John was saying. If you want something new, if you want something fresh to happen, if you want God to show up in your life, you've got to repent of your sins and come. And that's what John was saying. He was even calling people a brood of vipers, preaching turn or burn, And thousands of people were going out into the desert to hear him preach. It was crazy. And they were getting baptized as they were going down to the water. It was like they're being washed of all their sins and coming up a new person. And here comes one man in the crowd who's listening to John preach named Jesus. And Jesus, just like every other man and woman who was there getting baptized, gets into the water. Okay, bonus point here. You should get baptized. We picked today for baptisms, and I picked it because it fit with my preaching calendar. And the five people we have signed up for baptism, none of them could do it today. Okay? That's kind of how it happens every time. It seems like whenever I plan it with my preaching schedule, it doesn't work for everybody else's schedule. What's up with that? Um, but we have those five people, and if you have never been baptized, we're going to do it probably in the next month or two. Now I'm going to pick a day that probably works better for them instead of just me, right? Okay, so that's what we're going to do for our baptisms. Um, so, uh, and if you're thinking, well, why do you get baptized? Well, this is us saying, yes, we are repentant of our sins. We want our sins to be washed away. But it's actually a public declaration that I follow Jesus. Um, so if you've never done that, you should do it. And I do want to say this. Jesus was a grown man who was perfect, and he got into the water. So you got no excuse. If you've never done it, time to get dunked. Okay? Just going to say that. You can fill it out on your connection card or talk with me. I will do it. I love dunking people. It's one of the best part of my jobs. So that's a little bonus point there. Jesus was baptized, you should be baptized too. So what is going on here? Look at the second half of verse 21, where we read, And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son. Do you always picture what God talks like? You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It's got to be deep. You've got to have a deep low voice if you're going to imitate God. Okay. 
From the second verse as we are introduced to the adult Jesus, this is a miraculous, supernatural event. Okay? That's why I said there's no way to avoid it when you read the Bible. This is something supernatural that we see. Jesus is first time on the scene. He gets dunked. All seems normal. And then, boom! The heavens are opened! Okay? This happened one other time in the Bible in Ezekiel chapter 1. We, we covered this passage last year when this prophet Ezekiel has this incredible vision and it looks like heaven is just ripped open and then all of a sudden he has this incredible vision. Well, here this has happened. The, the Holy Spirit himself, the power of God, the Spirit of God comes down in the form of a dove, rests on Jesus, and then a voice, the Father in heaven, says, You are my Son. You are my Son. So I want you to notice the Holy Spirit comes, and I also want you to notice that this voice from heaven, the Father, the Creator God, because that's what the, the Bible always says when it's talking about from heaven, it's saying from God. So God is speaking, and it says, You are my Son, to Jesus, with whom I love with you, I am well pleased. So Jesus, uh, of course, I'm sorry, Luke was investigating Jesus. He went and heard, there was eyewitnesses and earwitnesses to this event, right? People saw this, people heard it. This is a major thing that gets repeated in some of the other accounts of Jesus' life. And it says, you are my son. So from the very beginning, the Father in heaven, God himself, says that this Jesus is the son of God. And this is a unique thing because this phrase, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased, is actually quoting two different scriptures from the Old Testament. One from Psalm chapter 2 and one from Isaiah chapter 42. And combining it to say this is a special, unique person. He is my Son, God is declaring. So Jesus has declared the divine Son of God from the very beginning of His adult ministry, as we'll see here in just a second. He's called the Son of God. We can't avoid it. This is what the Bible says. This is what the God in heaven says. So what does that mean? Well, this would have been an interesting thing because to be someone's Son would mean, in a sense, you're of the same essence or substance. That there's an equality between the Father and the Son that is different from everyone else. This is a uniqueness that the Father in heaven is declaring about Jesus himself. He and he alone is the divine Son of God. My Son, God says. Well, this is a pretty powerful thing, especially for Jews, because Jesus, John, all these guys were Jewish at the time. To a Jew, you are a monotheist. You believed in one God. And yet here it is declared that there is this man who is equal to God. Would have blown some people's minds, which is why everybody remembered it and recorded it, okay? How could it be that Jesus is the Son of God equal to the Father in heaven? How does that work? How do those things work? Well, this is actually what the early Christians, what, what the scriptures declare over and over and over about Jesus that he is the same essence, substance as God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. The same being, same essence, and same substance. If you look at different translations, they translate it differently. Because that's a Greek word that's hypostasis. Hypostasis, a weird word, but we're going to get back to it in a little bit. That's why I'm telling you this. That this Jesus is the same hypostasis, same being, essence, substance as God. Interesting. We see this again in Colossians chapter 1. It says, The Son is the visible image of the invisible God. The early Christians said, Jesus is the Son of God. He is equal to God in some 
crazy way that he's the same substance, same essence as God. Jesus is, in a sense, God here, right? In a way that was completely unheard of and unthought of until this moment. But you hear this voice from heaven, that's definitely God. Here's Jesus, and there's going to be other things throughout Jesus' life and ministry that kind of make this obvious. But okay, wow, how does this work? What we say is, I don't understand that. But just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. We don't understand it, but that is what the scriptures claim, that Jesus is God, uniquely God, the Son of God. Okay, this is really important for us to hear, and this is why the theologians in the Christian tradition over and over again have said Jesus is God. And this is what Martin Luther, the great reformer, said. I love this quote. He says, To this human being, Jesus, you shall point and say, Here is God. To this human being, you will point and say, This is God. That's what we do as Christians. Jesus is God. He's not just a great moral teacher or example. He is God of the very essence of God. Now, if you're like, well, Matt, I don't know how does that make sense. Well, I just want to show it to you on a smaller scale. Because what we love, actually, if you look through our myths and our fairy tales, is we love when the greater becomes the lesser. We love when the king leaves the castle, leaves his crown, leaves his ornate robes, and comes and is a peasant among the people. Or we watch it on reality TV, don't we? When the CEO comes down and leaves his tie and starts working on the assembly line. Or we also love when an adult or a parent goes down to the same level as their child to talk with them. So to a small extent, we see this, that the greater can become lesser on behalf of the lesser. And to take that in times a billion, and there you kind of have what's going on here. God himself, who created all things, if he's that great and powerful, could he not then become the lesser, the human being, to be among us? And that's how this Jesus, this man, could be the one true God, same essence as the Father in heaven. Tracking with me? This is what the scriptures claim about him, even here at the beginning in his baptism. Okay, now we're going to jump to the third section. So we're going to jump to chapter 4, because this idea of Jesus being the Son of God is actually pushed again in chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. Because in this passage, what we see is that it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay, I'm emphasizing Holy Spirit because what happened at Jesus' baptism? Holy Spirit came down like a dove. Here now, the Holy Spirit is on him. Okay, We're going to get to the Holy Spirit here in just a little bit. But it says that he's at the Jordan. What else was at the Jordan? Remember last week? That's where John was baptizing. Okay, It's the Jordan River east of Jerusalem, by the Dead Sea. And he was on the east side of the Jordan where the desert was, the wilderness, which is called in the Scriptures. This was no water, hot, not much to eat. And this is where Jesus was after he got baptized. Baptized in the Jordan River and then went out east of the Jordan into the wilderness. And what happens there? Let's keep reading. Verse 2. It says, Where for forty days Jesus was tempted by the devil. Okay, the devil is real. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not real. Okay, you've heard me say that before. Okay, devil himself, and the devil is a translation of the Hebrew Satan, which means the accuser. So the enemy of God, the accuser of God's people, is coming to Jesus in person. And it says also that Jesus ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Duh, right? 
But yes, 40 days. If, if you're in here and you're doing our, a fast as part of our 21 days of prayer and fasting, you know that you get hungry when you don't eat, right? Okay? And it's hard. Okay? 40 days. I can't go 40 hours without getting hangry. Anybody else? Man, if you come to me during my time of fasting and you say something stupid, I will rip your head off. I, I wish I didn't, but I'm working on it, right? That's what we do, right? So now, 40 days without eating, Jesus is out there. Why 40 days? Because the Israelites, before they entered the Promised Land, had to wander in that same wilderness desert for 40 years before God led them into the Promised Land. And they were tested again and again and again, just like Jesus is going to be tested here. 40 days, he represents God's people. He's hungry. So at the end of this, and it says that the devil was tempting him, and that actually makes it seem like he was tempted over and over and over again, but we're actually just shown three of probably the most prominent temptations that the devil threw at Jesus. And that's what we're going to see next. I want you to see this. Uh, I'm starting in verse 3. So in verse 3 it says, The devil said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, this is important, if you are the Son of God, this is going to occur again. So I want to emphasize this. Probably this means that it wasn't until this point the devil came to tempt him. Probably it wasn't until he heard the voice from heaven saying, This is my son, that the devil's like, Oh, that's the dude. Let's go see. Okay, let's go see. So he says, If you are the Son of God, if you have that power, if you are one in essence with God in heaven and equal to him, tell this stone to become bread. Now that sounds pretty tempting if you haven't eaten for 40 days. You have that power. If you're God, you can make a stone into bread. I mean, God created the whole universe. You could just create a little bit of bread, right? We had a guy come last week, and he had moved here to Denver uh, from another state and then lost his job two weeks later, and they didn't pay him. And so he was here. He's like, I haven't eaten for three days. I'm hungry. Can you help me? I have no money. Okay? There's a bunch of people in our church that got together. They got him some money, got him what he needed so he could get back home. And he came up to me right after the service. He's like, I'm hungry. I haven't eaten in three days. And I said, well, we just took communion. You want some bread? That's what I had to give him, right? We gave him the communion bread right then, and he was so happy because when you're that hungry, you want some bread. I mean, anything sounds good, but bread especially, I mean, that's real substance. It's got some carbs in there. Okay? So the devil is tempting Jesus here. He says, just make some bread. You've been hungry enough here in the desert. It's been hot. But Jesus answered, it is written... It is written, that's important. Man shall not live on bread alone. Where is it written? In the Scriptures. Jesus is actually quoting the book of Deuteronomy here. And if you go on and read the rest of the quote, it says, but on every word that comes from the Father. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. What Jesus is saying is, yes, I could turn this stone into bread. But God has put me here, and I am hungry and I am fasting, And I don't need bread to live. I can rely on God. It's interesting here. I think that there's a through line through all these temptations because Satan is saying, you have the power. Use it. You're the Son of God? Use your Son of God powers. Make some bread. Why are you so hungry? But Jesus chooses not to use his Son of God power here. Look at the second temptation. Because then Satan, the devil, takes Jesus, it says, to a high place. We learn in Matthew that it was on top of a mountain. And in some supernatural way, he could see all the kingdoms of the world from the top of this tall mountain. And the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, can we 
move on, Kevin, to the next passage. Thank you, sir. Six, verse six. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority, talking about these kingdoms of the world that he could see, I will give you all their authority and splendor if you worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He once again quotes Deuteronomy. There's one God, worship the one God, I can't worship anybody else. No person, no thing can ever go above God, Jesus says. Why is this important? Well, once again, this is a, tempt- a temptation to power. You could have all the power. Why are you stumbling around as this, this man hungry in the desert? Nobody even knows who you are. You're just out here by yourself. You could have all the authority and power over all the words. I will make you the king of kings, the devil says. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I can only worship one God. I don't need that power. I don't need that authority. I don't need that splendor or glory for myself. And then there's a third temptation that the devil himself throws at Jesus. He says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. So now the devil takes Jesus to the highest point on the temple. In the city of God on Jerusalem, and this is probably the southeast corner of the temple, and there on the southeast corner of the temple, not only would it be high, but it was overlooking the Kidron Valley right below. And if you know anything about the geography here, right across from that valley was the Mount of Olives, where Jesus spent his last night. So it was there overlooking this valley on the top of the temple where Jesus was taken. And it's probably at least a hundred foot drop down. If you fall, you die. And the devil says, throw yourself down from here for it is written. Interesting now, right? Now it's the devil quoting scripture. And he quotes from the Psalms. He says, he, God, will command his angels concerning you. And he goes on to quote the Psalms. He said, if you're really the son of God, If you are the Son of God and you have that power, why don't you talk to your Father in heaven? He'll send some angels to catch you. Use your power, the devil is saying. You're the Son of God. Why don't you use it? If you really are the Son of God, use your power. To which Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. See, one of the tricky things that the devil will do is he'll actually quote Scripture to you. And if you don't know it well enough, You'll get misguided. This is what even the devil did to Eve in the garden. Did God really say don't even touch? See, he kind of misinterprets and misquotes the Bible. So you get, you're like, I think that sounds right. Did he really say? But he quoted this word for word. But Jesus said, okay, yes, but that passage is not saying that we should just jump off a cliff, jump off the temple, and then God will catch us with his angels. Because that's suicidal. It's saying that if harm comes to you, God will command his angels concerning you. Not that you should seek out self-harm. And that's why she said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's not for us to test God and try to control him. Once again, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to use that power with my unique relationship with the Father in heaven. I'm choosing not to use that. And then after this third temptation, Jesus passed. And the devil left him. The devil left him. Okay, so what is going on here? Did you notice that in all three of these temptations, it's because of the power that he has as the Son of God, And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to use that power right now. I won't use it. It's not for me to use my power or authority. I might be the Son of God, but I'm not going to use it. Why is that significant? Because that's what Jesus did as the Son of God while he was here on the earth. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this and explain it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Jesus, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Now, every once in a while you'll hear the lie that it wasn't until much later that Christians started calling Jesus God. It's a lie. Because Paul wrote Philippians here probably 15 years after Jesus died, um, 20 years max. And this section from verses 6 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2 was actually something that was written before the gospel, or I'm sorry, the letter to the Philippians. It was probably written within five years, within five years of Jesus' death. And they were already saying Jesus in very nature God. Okay? That's another little bonus point for you. From the very, very beginning, probably because they heard this sound from heaven, this voice saying, Hello, this is my son. Look at him. He's God. Okay? And they're like, okay. Now that we've seen what he did, we believe it. And that's why they worshipped him as God, even though they were Jews and you didn't worship anybody but God. <laughs> now they're saying Jesus is God. Okay, but what we see here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, is that Jesus didn't use his godhood, his essence of God, his hypostasis, for his own advantage. In the Greek, it's a phrase that means he didn't grasp it. That he, didn't, he, he had it, but he didn't pull it and keep it for himself. So the whole time he was God, and yet he chose not to act as God. And I'm going to make a claim here. Somebody came up afterwards. I'm not going to build on it today, but I just want to put this in your mind. I don't think Jesus did a single thing in his entire ministry because of his godhood. Okay? He might have claimed, like, I am a person that's God, but he never once did something in the power of his godhood. I'm just going to throw that out there right now. Because what we see here at the very beginning of his ministry, before he did anything, before he did any miracles, he said, I'm not using my godhood to my own advantage. I am God, but I'm not going to act like God while I'm among you. So what is going on here, Matt, and why are you saying that this is so important and so significant for me? Well, this is a powerful thing. This is a powerful idea if you think of God who has all the power, not using his power while among us. Remember in the Lord of the Rings? Read the books, saw the movies? There's this beautiful elf, Arwen, right? And, and she's played by the lovely Liv Tyler. And Arwen falls in love with Aragorn, but because he's a human being and she falls in love with him, in order for them to be married, she has to give up her immortality as an elf. She could go on living forever, but she chooses to give it up, become immortal, and die because she loved this man. That's a powerful story, isn't it? In the same way, and to a much higher extent, Jesus says, I have all this power. I am one in essence. The Father in heaven has declared me his one and only Son, and yet I choose not to act like God while I'm here. Okay, you guys tracking with me? This is a lot of theology right now. We're going to get to some applications. So just bear with me. This is important for your life. Just bear with me. I know this is a lot of theology. Because, because of what we're going to talk about next. If you noticed, I skipped a section, right? I jumped from the baptism to the testing in the wilderness, but I skipped a section. Does anybody know what I skipped there? Anybody? A genealogy. Most of you skip that when you read the Bible anyways, right? We look at him and we're like, oh, so-and-so and have begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so. And okay. We skip over that. And what I struggle with is I believe every word of God is important. It's there on purpose, and there has a purpose that we can learn from it. And I was looking at this passage, and it doesn't make sense. There are so many similarities. I see three clear similarities between those two stories we already went through. Did you notice what the three similarities are? Jesus was baptized, and Jesus was tempted by the Jordan. Okay? The same location, or a very similar location. And then we also saw something else. There was the Holy Spirit that came on Jesus in the baptism. 
Well, what happened right before he was tempted? The Holy Spirit came on him and filled him. Another similarity, right? And then there's a third one. People claim that Jesus is God. First, it was the Father in heaven in the baptism said, this is my son, he's the son of God. And then in the next passage, it was the devil who said, this is the son of God. So clear similarities. These passages obviously belong together. And if you, actually, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, they are back to back because they fit together, hand in glove. But yet Luke doesn't put them back to back. He puts this other little genealogy right in the middle. So I really struggled this week. Actually, I've been struggling for a while. Why is a genealogy in the middle of these two passages? They fit together. They seem to work together. Jesus is God, but he doesn't use his godhood while he's here on the earth. But what is this middle section for? So I'm going to present to you what I think it's there, and I think it's actually the key. So whenever you're reading the scriptures and you come across something and you're like, this doesn't make any sense, it's more than likely that that is the key to understanding the whole passage. (laughs) So keep at it, keep praying, keep studying, keep asking questions until you figure it out, because often that's the key. So I was looking at this, and I want you to see this in verse 23 of, Matthew, or I'm sorry, of Luke 3. It says, Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. This was the time when a rabbi took on disciples. This is the time where a priest entered into his service. Even in the Greek world, if you became a teacher, this is when you could fully do that when you're 30. So Jesus begins his ministry about 30 And it says that he was the son, so it was thought of Joseph. Of course, because of the divine conception, we know that's just what it was thought. But Joseph was the son of Heli. And then if you keep reading for verse after verse after verse, name after name after name, it says so-and-so is the son of so-and-so is the son of so-and-so. This is how genealogy worked, right? And this genealogy goes back and back and back. Now, as I was reading it, and, and maybe you've read it too, some names kind of pop out. There's names like David. Ooh, I think I've heard of him. That's King David, right? So Jesus is a descendant of King David. Ooh, that's a big deal. Ooh, I see Obed and Boaz. Do you remember from the Gospel, or I'm sorry, the, the Ruth, the book of Ruth that we studied last August? Those names are important. Okay, and, and Jesus is one of their descendants. You go back even farther, it goes back to Judah and to Jacob and to Isaac and to Abraham. Oh, I've heard those names before. Wow, Jesus is in the same lineage. So this is some big deal. We could look at that and say all those names, it was actually a prophecy that from their descendants would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Okay, that's pretty impressive. You can read all the back, back in Genesis and pretty much throughout the whole Old Testament are these prophecies that the son of David would come and reign on the throne forever. He would be the Messiah, that, that Abraham from his seed would come to bless the entire world. So all these prophecies of Jesus fulfilled. So is that the reason why this genealogy is there? I thought so for a while. <laughs> but I don't think so now. And the reason is is because Matthew includes a genealogy of Jesus as well. He starts it out, the page one of his book, he says, you've got to know Jesus, and here's his genealogy. And if you look at that genealogy, that is actually the point of it. It starts out by saying, Jesus is the son of David, and I will show you. And he goes from Abraham all the way to Jesus, saying how Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, fulfilling the prophecy that everybody's looking for. But Luke doesn't do his genealogy like that. Actually, he keeps going back farther than Abraham. So there must be a reason to this, right? That's another interpretive clue. You should look at how the stories are different in different Gospels. There's a reason why they have different details. Very smart guys. The Holy Spirit was guiding them. So I want you to see the very end of the genealogy that Luke includes. It says, The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Why does Luke trace Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the first human being, Adam? Now, this phrase, the Son of God, I think that's included because it ties all three of these stories together, right? Son of God, that's what Jesus declared in all of them. But this seems to be a, a, 
a lot different use of Son of God that we saw in the other two stories, right? Here, if you say that Adam is the Son of God, then you could just say that so is Seth, and so is Enosh, and so is Abraham, and so is David, and so is Luke, so is Taylor, and so is Casey, and so is all of us, right? We could all trace our lineage back to Adam, that's what the Bible tells us, and to God, so we're all the sons of God, right? Yes. I think Luke is doing something very deliberate here. He just said, the Father in heaven said, Jesus is the unique Son of God, one of a kind, one and only unique Son, right? And now he says, Jesus too is the universal Son of Adam. Tracking with me? In the same you know, section of Scripture, Jesus is the one unique Son of God and He's also the universal Son of Adam, just like you and me. See, Luke wants to put these back-to-back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry so that we know from the get-go Jesus is 100% God and 100% human. The theologians have called this the hypostatic union. Remember I said that verse hypostasis from Hebrews chapter 1-3? Because it's so unique that (laughs) there's nothing else like it, so we'll just use the phrase for it. Hypostatic union, that Jesus, in his person are 100% God, 100% human. It's not half God, half human. He's not Hercules. It's not that sometimes he's God and sometimes he's human. No, he's 100% God and 100% human all the time, forever. That's what Jesus is. This is the hypostatic union. The Westminster um, Confession of Faith is one of the best things that, that, that describe this hypostatic union, I believe. And it says, The Son of God, being very an eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did take upon him man's nature, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, very God and very man, yet one Christ. From the beginning and all the way to theologians today say, this is what the scriptures teach us. Now if you're saying, well, I don't understand that, that's okay, that doesn't mean it's not true. Okay, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, combined in the person of Jesus. The hypostatic union. You guys tracking with me? I don't care if you forget that phrase, but this doctrine is so important for you to know. It's so important for you to know. And I, I think if you're like, man, I still don't get it, because how can two things be one thing? Here's another way to think about it from the realm of physics. <laughs> We're talking about physics a lot today. What is light? Do you remember studying this in physics class? Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Oh, which one? Wave? Anybody think it's a wave? Anybody think it's a particle? Two guys sitting next to each other say one and the other. That's the thing about light. In some way, it's both. And I don't know exactly how it works. I had a physicist explain this to me when we were going through our God and Science series back in the fall. Um, but the physicist was like, yeah, you know, it, it's easy because, you know, when, when you just... Um, Look at the properties of light. It's a particle. I think I could be wrong on this. But then if you, you experiment with it and observe it, then it's the opposite. What? Just by observing it changes the nature of it. Okay, how does that work? So which one is it, a particle or a wave? The thing is, we don't know. Niels Bohr, the great physicist, said, we cannot say anything about the nature of light. Other physicists, of course, have debated him. And for 80, 90 years since then, we still don't know. We still don't have it figured out. We have to just say that it's both things in some way. So if we say about some realm of physics that light is both of these things at the same time in its nature, 
Why can't we say then in the supernatural, in the metaphysical realm, that perhaps Jesus is both man and God? 100% of each. Just because you don't understand it doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> okay? Keep an open mind. Okay, so now that we've talked about this, this, this teaching of Scripture, this doctrine about who Jesus is, the Son of God, and also the Son of Adam, what does it mean for us? Because this is why you came here today. You didn't come here just for a theological lecture. You came here because you want something for your life. Good. Good. And I think that actually believing this and understanding this has huge significance for our lives. Huge significance for our lives, especially when it comes to what happened in chapter 4. Because if Jesus is only the Son of God, then when He's going through temptation, you say, of course He passed. You know, I used to hate Superman as a kid. Not hate, but I was just like, Superman? Sorry, I see a Superman shirt back here. I was like, Superman, it's not even fair. He's perfect in everything. They have to invent kryptonite as a weakness, right? They have to invent this thing that doesn't exist. That's why, you know, me and a lot of other people drift towards Marvel, right? Because they all have their weaknesses, right? They all have their flaws and everything. Because I'm looking at Superman, I'm like, it's not even fair. It's not even fair. He can do whatever he wants. He's superhuman. Super... Okay, I think some people think of Jesus that way. It's not fair. He's the Son of God. He's perfect. Of course, he didn't give in to temptation. But that's not what the Scriptures teach us at all. They teach us that he was the Son of Adam 100%, and that he gave up while he was here on this earth his ability to use his godhood. He chose not to. He didn't grasp it for himself, right? So whenever he was tempted for 40 days and nights without eating in the hot sun of the desert, he never once gave in to the temptation of the devil over and over again. And when these three major temptations came, you can have food, you can have power, you can have authority. It's all yours anyways. Why don't you just take it? Man, that must have been tempting to Jesus. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, we read why this is important for us. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses... He's not Superman. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, Jesus was 100% human like me and you. And he overcame temptation again and again and again. Why is this important? Because we don't. We don't pass the test. We fail. We sin. We give in to temptation again and again and again, even when we know better. Even when we've seen the awful repercussions of our sin, we go back to it. But yet we look at Jesus, 100% man, 100% human, just like us. He didn't. Now that's significant. Because if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you have a new power. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, but if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. See, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Christ is in you. He lives inside of you. He's part of you. And the Spirit, which, get this, okay, track with me a little bit longer. If Jesus is the same essence as the Father and God's Spirit is the same essence as the Father, then Jesus is the same essence as the, the Spirit. That's why we call it the Trinity, Right? So when the Spirit comes into you to give you life, it's actually the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of Jesus Himself living in you. And if Jesus could overcome temptation and He lives in you, well, guess what? Now so can you. You have a new power. 
And it's not you just have to try harder and start some new habits and, and get an accountability partner. All oh, that's going to fix it. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit actually gives you a power that enables you to do this. If you're saying, Matt, I want to know about that. I want to know more about that. Come back next week. Okay? We're not going to get into the ins and outs this week on the Spirit, but next week come back. Because we'll talk about it even more. If Jesus couldn't do any of his ministry, if he couldn't even be tempted by the devil until the Holy Spirit came onto us, we need that Spirit too. And this is the amazing thing about what we're learning here at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And here's this. I want you to get this. The Son of God overcame our sin so we can overcome by His Spirit within. The Son of God overcame our sin, our human sin, our human flesh that we struggle, just like everybody else. He's the Son of Adam. Our sin, He overcame it so we can overcome by His Spirit within. God's Spirit can live inside you should you choose to follow Jesus, to empower you. See, Jesus isn't just our example out there in the desert. He's also our empowerment in our lives. See, the Son of God overcame our sins so we can overcome by His Spirit within. You have a powerful new force living in you. Okay? This is really important for us to understand. Um, and what's even more interesting is the devil left him here at this time. It says to tempt him later. Did you know that Jesus was tempted at a later time? It wasn't in the wilderness, but he was tempted at the end in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane, overlooking the temple in that same valley. And there in the garden, Jesus knew that he was being led to be suffered and killed, though he had done nothing wrong. Though he had never sinned, he knew he was about to face a sinner's death. And he even prayed to his Father in his heaven. He said, could you take this away from me? He was in all night long, crying out, praying, sweating. And he was crying out to God, please let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to do that. He was tempted to give up and not fulfill the calling that God had put on his life, the Father in heaven. And yet still Jesus said, I will do what is my Father's will in heaven. He passed the final test. And he went and died on the cross in our place. He took upon us the curse of sin, the punishment, the death that we deserve for our sin because we give into temptation again and again. And he overcame our sins so we can overcome by his spirit within. See, when we put our faith in the Son of God and what he did for us on the cross, this power is ours. Now, are we going to live in it perfectly? No. But know this, when you have that spirit in your life, you can overcome sin. You can have that power living within you. So that when we do face our temptations, maybe it's to a substance, to abuse it or to alcohol, to go back to it. Maybe it's towards sex or lust or pornography. Maybe it's to to greed and we just want to take more and more for ourselves and not be generous with the things that we have. Maybe it's a temptation in your life to belittle others and in pride look down on them and gossip about them and slander them. Or maybe it's the opposite You beat yourself up so much. You treat yourself poorly and you just have despair in your sight. That's what you're tempted to. Whatever your temptation is, what we've learned today is that through the power of the Son of God who overcame our sin, we too can overcome by His Spirit within. There is power. There is hope. We can overcome and have victory in our lives. You guys are pretty quiet. Do you believe that? This is a powerful thing. This is a hard thing. It's a challenging thing. It's going to take us the rest of our lives to do it. But we can do it now before we could not. 
through our faith in Jesus Christ, this now becomes possible. The Holy Spirit is living in you. The Holy Spirit is living in you. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. This is incredible. So as the band comes up, I just want to challenge you because we are struggling. We all have our temptations to sin. And those temptations keep coming. We give in again and again and again. But guess what? We have the power and it's never time and never okay to give up. And if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we need to learn more and more to live in it and be empowered by it and know that if the Son of God overcame his, our sin, we can overcome ours as well. Okay? Not by our power, but by His. So I'm going to close this in a time of prayer right now. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here and you're saying, Matt, 